Let's pray together. Father, again, we do thank you for your word to us tonight. These great words of Jesus, words of such clarity and truth and wisdom. And we pray, Father, that you would help me as I preach on these verses and that you would open all of our eyes and all of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. Encourage our hearts, we pray, because we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I invite you please to have your Bible open at that passage from Luke chapter 20 that we read earlier on this evening. And we come tonight to uh, verses 27 to 40. And in these uh, sermons in Luke's gospel at the moment, what we're seeing is that Jesus is in the middle of a day of controversy. It's the Tuesday of Holy Week. And one after another, these different groups of religious leaders keep coming up to Jesus asking him these trick questions. They're trying to catch him out, either to undermine him or to ridicule him or to accuse him of blasphemy or to hand him over to the Romans as a dangerous, rebellious upstart. By whatever way possible, they are desperately trying to get rid of Jesus. And to that end, they're getting into these controversial debates with him. So the first trick question came there in verse 2, right near the start of the, the chapter. Uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to Jesus and they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. They want to try and show that Jesus really has no proper authority to be a teacher. And if he claims to have God's authority, well, of course, he should be put on trial for blasphemy. And then the, the second trick question came in verse 22. They said to him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And really, they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, what do you think of the, the fact of people like us, the children of Israel, belonging to the Roman Empire? Do you think we should stay in, or do you think we should leave? Where do you stand on Israxit, as they, they may have called it? And you see, they're trying to get Jesus into a, a controversial political debate, a debate where inevitably he's going to say the wrong thing, whatever he says. He's going to end up upsetting somebody. And then tonight we come to the, the third trick question. And this time it's another group of people who come along with, with their line of attack. And this time it is the Sadducees who are going to bring this next trick question to Jesus. Now, first of all, we should consider this evening, well, who are these people? Who are the Sadducees? They are another religious group. Uh, they had a, a few distinctive beliefs which 
set them apart from the, the Pharisees and from other religious parties of the day. Firstly, the, the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, that is the, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. And so the rest of the Old Testament, they put in a, a secondary category along with other teachings. Now, the Pharisees, as I'm sure you know, were guilty of adding things to the scriptures. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were guilty of taking things away from the scriptures. And so of the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, they only really believed in the first five books as really being God's word, the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses. And then there's something else that was distinctive about these beliefs of the Sadducees. And that is that they didn't believe in the afterlife. So as they saw it, the soul perished with the body. In other words, this life is all there is. So make the most of it here. Live a good life. Follow those laws that Moses has given us in those first five books of the Bible. And if you do that, God will bless you in this life. And yet when you die, well, that's it. And they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. That is the general resurrection at the end of this age. They believed that there was nothing on the other side of the grave for either your body or your soul. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about the afterlife. But the Bible does tell us everything we need to know about the afterlife. The Bible tells us that the souls of Christian believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness. And they pass immediately into glory. They go to be with Christ which is far, far better than life here on earth now. And yet there's not just a glorious future for the souls of believers. There is also a glorious future for their body as well. And the bodies of believers which are still united to Christ rest in their graves until the general resurrection at the end of this age which will take place when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns and that general resurrection takes place, believers will be raised up in glory. Their resurrected bodies will be reunited with their souls. They will be gloriously renovated for an eternity in a perfect new creation. A world without Sickness, a world without sorrow, a world without sin or death. Christian believers will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, not because of anything that they have done, but because of what Jesus has done for them in his life and death and resurrection. And they will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That is the glorious eternal hope that is ours as Christians. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Maybe it sounds a bit fanciful to you. And yet it is a certain hope because Jesus himself 
is already risen from the dead. It's happened once already, hasn't it? That a dead human being has walked out of the grave, never to die again. And so Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago is what the Bible describes as the first fruits. Now we're still a few months away from the harvest, obviously, but later this year, if you have an apple tree in your garden, one day you'll be walking in your garden and you will spot the first apple to appear on that tree. And when you see that very first apple that appears there, the first fruit, well, you know, don't you, that that is not the end of the harvest. Of course not. It's only the beginning. And at some point in the not too distant future, many more will appear like it. And in a similar way, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits from the dead. And that wasn't, of course, the end of the story of resurrection. No, that was just the beginning. And at some point in hopefully the not too distant future, many millions more will be raised from the dead for eternal life with him. This is what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus believes. It's what we believe as Christians. And it's what the Sadducees didn't believe. And wrongly, they didn't think that the first five books of the Bible taught this truth about life after death and the resurrection and so forth. And therefore, they rejected this. So that's who the, the, the Sadducees were. That's what they believed. And in these verses of Luke chapter 20, they come up to Jesus with their own trick question. They want to try and show that when it comes to believing in the resurrection, Jesus has got it all wrong and they've got it right. And their question is basically this. How can Jesus' beliefs about the resurrection fit with Moses' teaching about levirate marriage? How can Jesus' teaching, Jesus' beliefs about the resurrection, fit with Moses' teaching about levirate marriage? It's never a good thing, by the way, to try and drive a wedge between Jesus and Moses, but that's what they're trying to do here. And you're probably thinking, well, what, what on earth is levirate marriage? What's this question about? Well, this is a, a law which is found in Deuteronomy 25, it's in the first five books of the Bible, of course, so the Sadducees agree with it. And basically, this is how the, the law concerning levirate marriage goes. They say if a man is married to his wife, but the man dies before they've had any children, then a close relative, probably a brother, is to marry his brother's widow. And then the first child that they produce is to be legally considered the first husband's heir. Now, by having a law like that, it meant that the name and the heritage of the deceased man would not just disappear from the people of Israel. Now, of course, that law doesn't apply to us today. Depending on whom your brother or sister-in-law might be, maybe that's a great relief to you. 
this was the way, though, in which the, the genealogies and the inheritances within Old Testament Israel were in law protected and sustained. And as you may know, the, the law concerning levirate marriage is actually the background to the book of Ruth. In that book, Ruth is the widow with no children. Boaz is the relative of the dead husband. And so Boaz then, as you know, marries Ruth so that their first child together, Obed, becomes the heir of Ruth's deceased husband. So the Sadducees come up with this ridiculous question for Jesus. How can Jesus' beliefs about the resurrection fit with that law of Moses about levirate marriage? And they say to Jesus, imagine this following scenario. Imagine that a woman married a man who then subsequently died before they'd had any children. And under the, the law of Moses, the next brother was to marry her and produce an heir with her. So he married her, and yet he also died before any kids came along. And so the third brother then stepped in, and he married her as well. And then the same thing happened. He died and still there's no children on the scene. And it kept happening again and again and again. Until this woman has worked her way through all seven brothers. I'm not sure what this woman was doing to these husbands. But it, it does appear, doesn't it, that very soon after marrying her, each one of them keeled over. Imagine being the next brother in line. You'd be quite nervous, wouldn't you? And then eventually, after all these husbands had died... The woman herself then died as well. You've heard of the film Four Weddings and a Funeral. This story is seven weddings and eight funerals. Spare a thought for this woman's poor minister. Every few weeks, another wedding, another funeral to organize, snowed under with these extra services. So they tell this ridiculous and hypothetical story, and they then get to their question. And they say to Jesus with a, a smirk, on their faces. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Well, they're saying to Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection at the end of the age, if you believe that God's people will spend eternity in a new creation, then whose wife is this woman going to be? Imagine her arriving in glory and all seven brothers are lined up, each staking their claim. Don't you see, Jesus, this belief in the resurrection, this teaching about eternal life and the new creation and everlasting physical immortal existence, it really is ridiculous. Your beliefs about resurrection life just don't fit with what Moses taught. So how is Jesus going to answer this question? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus gives a two-part answer. And he does so because there are two problems with the question. Now, Luke doesn't include this particular line in his account. But in the accounts of this story given by Matthew and Mark, Jesus says this. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And you see, Jesus says there are two problems 
with the Sadducees. On the one hand, they don't know the word of God, the scriptures. And on the other hand, they don't know the power of God. And in his two-part answer, Jesus is going to deal with both of those problems in turn. So here's how we can sum up the first part of Jesus' answer. Know the power of God revealed in the age to come. Know the power of God revealed in the age to come. That's verses 34 to 36. The first mistake that the Sadducees have made is assuming that when Jesus speaks about the age to come, he's just speaking about another age which is pretty much the same as this one. An age where the power of God is going to be no more manifest in the world than it is today. And of course that is simply not true. Because life in the new creation is going to be marked with a degree of power and glory that puts this present age very much in the shade. That's what scripture tells us again and again, doesn't it? How, how much more glorious the new age, the, the age to come will be. No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. You see, the power and the glory of the age to come is of a different order, a different magnitude to anything that we can see with our eyes in the world around us today. And yes, there will be continuity between this creation and that creation, the new creation. And yet it's not just more of the same all over again. No, the power and the glory of God, which to a great degree is veiled in this fallen world, will then be writ large in the age to come. And because of the power of God that will be made manifest in that new creation, marriage is no longer a necessary part of it. So listen again to what Jesus says. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now consider this. What is the purpose of marriage? Well, there are, of course, numerous purposes of marriage. We shouldn't try and limit to just one purpose of marriage. But one of the purposes of marriage is, of course, reproduction. Why is reproduction necessary obviously it's necessary because we die we need to keep replacing people 
because one by one they're shuffling off this mortal coil. And so in this realm, God has given us marriage as the context in which children are to be conceived and born and then raised up as godly men and women. And eventually they will die as well. And then the next generation will pick up the baton. That's what life in this age is like. But in the age to come, when resurrection power floods our souls and our bodies limitlessly, well, as Jesus puts it, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And when Jesus says they're equal to angels, he doesn't mean that we're going to become angels. That is a common misconception. If you're a human on this side of the grave, you're going to be a human on the other side of the grave as well. Nobody turns from being a human into an angel. But Jesus says we will be equal to angels and will be equal to them in this regard, that just as they are without sin, and just as they are immortal, in that age to come, we will be without sin, and we will be immortal also, by the immeasurable power of God towards us in Christ. This is the first mistake that those Sadducees made, says Jesus. They don't know the power of God. And the God that they imagine is far too small, a God who just keeps us alive for 80 or so years in this old fallen world before finally we succumb to disease or disaster or old age. And that's all he's got to offer to us. And yet the true God is incomparably more powerful than that. And in and through Jesus Christ, death itself will one day be banished from this world forever. And good riddance to it. And all things will be made new. And all of his people will bear the image of the man of heaven forever. Never to die again. You need to know the power of God that will be revealed in the age to come. Jesus says to these Sadducees. And then here's part two of his answer. Know the word of God. Revealed in the scriptures. Know the word of God revealed in the scriptures. Remember these Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. The books of Moses. And because they didn't think that the resurrection of the dead was taught in those books. They rejected this doctrine. Now of course there are quite a number of places in the Old Testament taken as a whole, which do clearly teach the resurrection of the dead. So we've already sung earlier on this evening Psalm 16, which speaks of this truth. And also there's famously Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or Daniel chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's lots of places you see where we can turn in the Old Testament to see this truth of the resurrection of the dead. 
But Jesus doesn't turn to any of those places for the simple reason that those bits of the Old Testament I've mentioned there are not in the first five books of the Bible. And so the Sadducees would just dismiss them because it wasn't written by Moses. And so Jesus, we might say, thinks to himself, well, where should I turn in the first five books of the Bible? Those bits written by Moses to prove that the Bible teaches life after death and the resurrection and so forth. And again, even just within the first five books of the Bible, there are numerous places Jesus could have turned. But he chooses Exodus chapter 3, which is the story of the burning bush. And he says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. One commentator sums it up very helpfully like this. He says, Jesus attaches the fullest possible meaning to the actual words of Exodus 3, verse 6. And his argument is this. If in the time of Moses, when Abraham is long since dead, the Lord can still say that he is, present tense, is the God of Abraham, then there must still be an Abraham for him to be the God of. A man with whom the living God has a living relationship, must himself be alive, even though he may have physically died. It's very simple, but very profound logic, isn't it? Notice Jesus' own doctrine of scripture. He hangs his argument on the tense of the verb to be. God does not say, I was or I used to be the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of of Abraham. And if God can speak in the present tense of being, of being Abraham's God and Isaac's God and Jacob's God, even though Abraham and the others had died long ago, well, what does that say about Abraham? Well, it tells us, doesn't it, doesn't it that Abraham's body was still resting in the grave. And yet his soul was with God, alive with God. And one day Abraham's body will be raised and it will be gloriously renovated, reunited with his soul, and then enter into the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. And if you're in Christ, then one day the same will happen to you as well. William Hendrickson puts it like this. He says, the God of the covenant is not the God of dead bodies, but of living people. Those dear ones who have exchanged this life for the life hereafter may seem dead to us, but to God, they are very much alive. The vital and glorious relationship between himself and them cannot be broken cannot be broken even by death. He is the God of the living. 
And you see, Jesus tells us that everything we need to know about what lies beyond the grave is given to us in the Bible. It's all there in Scripture. And the Bible may not answer every question we have about heaven and about the resurrection of the dead and about the new creation and about eternity. There are no doubt questions you have that we don't have the answers to. And yet God has told us everything we need to know about all of those things. And so Jesus says to these Sadducees, and he says to us as well this evening, you need to know the word of God revealed in the scriptures. You need to know the word of God. And with that, he's answered this ridiculous question. And he's done so with wisdom and with clarity and with truth. Luke says that some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. You see, they give up at this point on this futile game of trying to catch Jesus out in something that he might say. He's too clever. He's too wise for them. And he says, you need to know the power of God that will be revealed in the age to come. And you need to know the word of God, which is revealed in the scriptures. And with that, there are no more questions for Jesus. But of course, there is one more question that, that we have to ask ourselves, having heard tonight what Jesus has to say about this age to come and about eternal resurrection life in the new creation. And the question is, of course, am I going to be a part of it? Am I going to be a part of it? And notice that, that Jesus makes clear here that not everyone is going to be a part of it. Jesus is not a universalist. He doesn't believe that everybody goes to heaven. It makes that clear in verse 35, doesn't he? Notice there he, he delimits the focus of what he is saying. And he, he speaks particularly of those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And that phrase of Jesus should make us ask, well, who are those who are considered worthy? Who is worthy for that age to come? Who is worthy to be a son of God and a son of the resurrection? Is it those who've lived a good enough life here? Well, no, of course not. Rather, those who are considered worthy are those who've recognized their own unworthiness and yet have trusted in Jesus and by so doing, receive the free gift of eternal life from God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I hope that this evening, having listened to these words of Jesus about these things, that you know something of the word of God revealed in the scriptures. And you know something of the power of God that will be revealed in the age to come. And most of all, that you would be trusting in Jesus so that all of this is yours in him. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we humble ourselves before you in prayer now, we, we confess that no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what you have prepared for those who love you. 
And yet these things you have revealed to us through the Spirit and by your word. And we thank you for these words of Jesus that we've listened to this evening in which he expounds your word. And he speaks of the immeasurable power of the age to come when all of your people will be raised from the dead physically and they will be made fit for an eternity in a glorious new creation where we will never die because we're sons of God and sons of the resurrection. And we thank you that all of this is possible only because of what Jesus has done for us. He has taken our punishment at the cross. He's conquered death by his own glorious resurrection when he rose from the dead as the first fruits from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him can, by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone, be considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us to know your word, which is revealed in the scriptures. Help us to know something of your immeasurable power, which will be revealed in that age to come. And encourage our hearts, we pray, with these things, even as we pass through this old world of sin and death, knowing that eternal glory awaits when at last we will arrive in Emmanuel's land. And in his glorious name, we pray these things. Amen.